Got time for a quick story. I love when albums or songs leave a strong impression upon me. Like maybe there's something going on in my life or something going on in society or something going on in the weather, perhaps, whatever. But there's something that leaves a stronger impression from that piece of music. And maybe it, it doesn't feel super comfortable at the time. Sometimes it does. It, it varies because that's music. Music is leaves all sorts of different emotions upon the listener. But it's distinct. It stays with you. And that's a sign of great art. And I was getting that impression listening to Primitif by Jack Hughes. It's his first solo album released. came out March 20th, and I was listening to it the day before uh, my interview with Jack Hughes, which you'll hear in, in just a moment. And I was thinking about, wow, the, the, the chords in this, in this album especially. For some people, it's lyrics. For others, it's music. Sometimes it's both. For me, it's the music itself. The chords, the, the arrangement, the progressions... Of, of, again, the chords, they tend to create the strongest visual picture for me and leave the strongest memories. And I was getting that listening to Primitif the day before this interview. Well, now we're going to start this interview here with Jack Hughes and about this new solo album, Primitif. First solo album, though, correct me on this, even though you've done a lot of projects, assorted bands, obviously most well-known for Wang Chung, but other projects over time, did you not do another solo project that didn't see the light of day? I did, yeah. That was back in around about 1990, I think. I recorded a solo record for Columbia right at the end of the Wang Chung thing, you know. And, um, yeah, there were a lot of politics around at that time. And I think it was mainly the politics that prevented it coming out rather than the quality. Not all those ever bothered record companies, of course. So. Uh, but, yeah, so that's an album that I sort of shelled and have never really got back to. And a number of people said, will it ever see the light of day? And I guess yes is the answer. But I certainly didn't want to get things confused right now. So uh, Primitive <laughs> is the first solo album. How would you compare? I mean, I know we're talking... 29 30 years worth of 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 working on the projects but is, can you draw a line between those two solo projects compared to other projects stylistically i guess uh the <clears throat> the thing that unites them both is a focus on songwriting and a lot of my other projects after wang chung have been uh, either production oriented in the 90s and then when i've been the sort of artist sort of writer performer uh they've been more well it's been file under jazz you know but i always think it's a little pushing it a bit to say that uh, what i do is jazz it's more like sort of progressive rock but using upright bass and the kind of jazz feel of a you know a drummer who's oriented that that sort of way you know for me these genre distinctions are pretty um provisional i think you know and certainly i love being in some sort of a borderless zone really right the opener on this album is The Look of Love, which yes. took me – wow, that, that's an interesting starting point for that. Why yeah. that song to kick off this album? Uh, a number of reasons. Um, 
partly though I wanted because a lot of people sort of say the look of love's a great song but your songs are great songs why didn't you start with your own stuff you know you don't have to kind of as it were creep in but that that's not what I was doing um, I wanted to create a, uh, do a song that was like a sort of portal out of the real world of songs if you like into my own interior world you know so the look of love has to be the first track I didn't want it to be like track four or five it wouldn't have made sense you know and I guess this album is in some ways about um, sort of relationships and so on but it's also about my life in music and my life generally um, and I guess the look of love is a, is a song that I was playing when I was 12 13 years old in my father's dance band so my dad was a saxophone player and he had a kind of dance band that worked in this dance hall, uh, dance hall days um, <laughs> in my hometown where I grew up and um, yeah the, they were playing fairly what I consider to be old fashioned music you know uh, but one of the tunes that I really loved playing and, that, and I was playing bass in his band like electric bass guitar you know? um, one of the songs I loved was The Look of Love you know and I guess because it had this it's like a D minor 7 that it plays in mm -hmm. the, in the original score i play it in f <laughs> but um, but there's a particular sound to that chord that's just gorgeous slightly sort of unresolved jazzy kind of thing you know and i just just love that and just the way the melody has this very kind of do -do, do -do, do -do, do -do, this very symmetrical kind of melody so the geometry of it all appealed to me even at that young age you mentioned the the chords there and that was one of my bigger takeaways from this album there uh -huh. was like diamond ring, I love that con that chord progression kind of going down, 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 and, and I'm I'm probably getting my my theory terminology off a little bit, but it feels like there's a lot of whole step progressions or something similar to that. It's not your typical. I mean, yeah. it, it's not completely unusual, but at the same time, it's it's not a typical. Let's just do like a five and a four and a one. Some your usual pop music progression. Yeah. Um, do you find that as being sort of a signature in your writing and something that you prefer to do in 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 terms of these uh, more imaginative, not super complex, but something that brings a different feel? as the chords go along and you feel like you're in a different place. Yeah, that's, that's very important to me. Um, you know, I think if you listen to the, the first uh, album I made, was the, uh, an album called Huang Chung. This was Huang Chung, but it was spelled differently. <clears throat> and I've actually just been, we're going to be re-releasing all of the Huang Chung albums uh, starting towards the, the fall, I think, and going through next year. Nice. And so I've just been looking at the sleeve notes for the Huang Chung reissue, you know, and, and thinking about those tracks. And, um, you know, I think with Huang Chung, there was this sort of sense of, I, you know, back, back at that time, so we're talking like 1980, 81, when I was writing those songs, you know, I'd just come out of music college and I was very sort of fired by modern music and, and when I say modern music I mean composers like sort of Prokofiev and Shostakovich and Bartok Stravinsky um, these guys who would you, you listen to their music and it sort of sounds conventional but it also sounds a bit off somehow mm -hmm. you know? and quite often it's because they're building chords at a slightly different intervals and sort of extending the range of things a bit and I wanted to bring that into the pop music that I wrote so that's very in evidence in Wang Chan and I suppose when you're dealing with record companies who are trying to mass market your work they sort of frown on that really you know not because there's some technical <laughs> um, blueprint that they're adhering to but it's just like 
there's a sense of like, you know, here's a great melody, here's a the chords that go with it. Keep it simple. Do you know what I mean? And uh, and I always thought, no, keep it complex. Right. <laughs> and um, and I kind of like that. And Primitif is full of that kind of thing. It's like to an over the top sort of a sense. And that's one of the things I wanted with this album that it would sort of, in a sense, deluge you with the sort of inventiveness of mm-hmm. where you can take things. You know. So I do that even with the look of love. You know, you get the song played fairly straight, although I mess with the chords. Uh, of the, the sort of original backrack version, uh, but after the song has been stated, I then send it off on a journey where it's modulating furiously, and um, and that's all to do, I guess, with a certain kind of unsettled feeling that I hope the whole record has, which was to do with the unsettled feeling I had at that point in my life. Interesting that you talk about the, I, I guess. Y- y- unsettled, but in a musical sense, not necessarily in a in a bad way. It's just, that that's that's the overall that's the impression. And I was thinking this last night. I was giving it another. I give it gave it a few listen throughs, and I'm listening through it last night. And I'm thinking this album is making almost a visceral impression. Sometimes a lot of a lot of pop music, and that's always the case, is is going to sound. You know, basic. That's fine because you want to have it as mass appeal as possible. But I remember thinking. It crossed my mind last night as I'm literally sitting at the table, and I go, "This, this is probably if I hear this again six months, twelve months down the road, I'm probably going to remember it from this time. Maybe it's because there's so much going on in the world right now that obviously stuff is more impressionable. Anything makes more of an impression, but yep. there was more. Like it, it just so happens that the timing is right that this comes out." From a musical point of view, you could say from a lyrical point of view, but from a musical point of view, yeah. it, it it seems to be matching just right to really put an imprint in your brain. Yeah, people have said this to me, um, uh, you know, that it feels like the right time, this sort of mixture of it being quite raw, visceral, performance-related. You know, somebody said to me, you know, it's very stripped-down production, you know, and I kind of think, well, you know, <laughs> it's quite elaborate in places, you know. But the, the idea of calling it primitif was really because I recorded it all at home, you know, in this little apartment that I was living in at the time. So I wasn't, didn't have access to a big studio with all of the panel P and stuff that you have. But of course, I got a, a pretty good computer. And these days, you can simulate a lot of stuff. And I think, um, I mean, another thing with this double album is that I'm fascinated, ever more fascinated, really, with recordings as a as a thing. Sure. I mean, and I think the you know, there is a great book on the history of recording called um, Perfecting Sound Forever. Uh, the author's name escapes me right now. Um, it will come back to me. But that's an amazing book about the history of recording. And uh, and I think um, one of the things that I've just been obsessed with, and I was in the 80s, you know, I loved making records. I wasn't that keen on touring and all of that stuff, but I loved being in the studio. And the 80s was a really interesting time to make records because it was the real beginning of technology in terms of drum machines and synthesizers and samplers mm-hmm. all being born at that time. So they were incredibly new things and experimenting them was experimenting with them was a lot of fun and it really extended the range of what was at your fingertips in a studio, you know. And of course now all of that stuff, which was so uh, exotic then, is now standard mm-hmm. fare for any kind of garage band thing that you might have, you know. Um, but yeah, th- this album is a lot of the songs were written on acoustic guitar first, 
and uh, and you can hear the acoustic guitar on most of the tracks, mm-hmm. and then I built stuff around it. You know, and uh, I say I recorded it all at home. You know, once I got the bulk of the work done, I then went into a studio with some good friends of mine and recorded live drums. And uh, there's a song called "You Will Kill the One You Love," mm-hmm. uh, where I, I used it's, it's all live playing on that track. Mm-hmm. Uh, your overall songwriting method do you start with the music typically is it lyrical is it a bit of both what how does it how does the song come to you mm, that's a good question um <clears throat> i think in the past i've often come got the music first and then write the lyrics you know but with primitif a lot of the songs grew out of poetry that i wrote before i started even thinking about about the music um and so you know the the work that i've done up to primitif was really three collaboration type albums with my jazz quartet and other on and other people and two of those collaborations were with poets so with those things i was working with proper poetry mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh uh and i i just sort of got into this, something that's very normal in the classical world you know where a composer like beethoven or schubert mm-hmm. you know uh, would work from a pre-existing bit of poetry and he created the music from that and uh, one of the big influences on primitif is a song cycle called um a winter's journey or in german it's called winterreise but a winter's journey is a, a song cycle by schubert and um i see a lot of parallels with uh primitif and there is a song on primitif called winter which specifically re- references the schubert the schubert cycle so um yeah slightly long-winded answer so primitif <laughs> is very much about uh, uh, the lyrics first and the music fitting to it. The lyrics also will repeat at times. And especially that, that was the probably the other theme that I started to pick up on as I'm listening through this again. I'm going, okay, there's a motif that gets repeated at the end and it gets repeated again and again and again. Yeah. And that could... You, you know how repeating stuff can go one of two ways. Either it is the classic Pro Tools copy, paste, 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 and and yeah. just mail it in just to just to drive something home. But that's it. Or yeah. it can build into something and take on a life of its own. And that's at one hundred percent what I was thinking. Is as these lines were being repeated, and I noticed this over and over again throughout the album. And I go, it's almost like a mantra, repeated yeah. mantras. Yeah. What what was your intention with that arrangement approach of taking a line and and repeating and repeating and then making little alteration to the music and another little alteration to the music? How what what was your why did you decide to go that way? Well, <clears throat> part of the inspiration was um, David Bowie's album Black Star <laughs> and uh, how he in that album. Um, has this sort of linear way of writing. So he'll he'll take a line and repeat it, and the music sort of doesn't have that sort of verse-chorus structure. Uh, so that was a big inspiration. There's also um, a classical composer that I love called uh, Claude Debussy. Mm, and, yes. And his piece called Je has fascinated me since I first heard it when I was like, 22, 23 years old, you know. And in that piece of music, he takes a, a musical idea and repeats it and then goes on to the next idea and repeats it. When you listen to Je, you sort of think, there's a lot of ideas in this, but it seems cogent. But when you actually start breaking it down, it's like there's absolutely no repetitions in it, apart from the one that you get 
when you first heard the idea. So I just got fascinated with this thing. And I also read somewhere in sort of esoteric texts that when you see a sentence repeated twice or three times, it's significant. It's, it's kind of, and, and exactly what you say. It's a sort of mantra. It's part of a sort of prayer almost in those texts. And I kind of wanted that in, in Primitive. I wanted to sort of have that repetitive thing, but also to sort of toy with song structures. So most of the songs you sort of think, yeah, that's a sort of verse chorus song. But when you actually look at it, you think uh, like Whitstable Beach, for example, you know, has this long kind of pulsing thing with no time signature really. And then it, the drums kind of come in and there's a section that should be the chorus but it's both times the chords are the same but the vocals are quite different both times mm -hmm. so it's kind of like sketching in the shape of a verse chorus type structure but actually filling the space with other stuff you know mm -hmm. so it's um I, I wanted it to be really inventive all the time to never just sort of like sit back and be about repetition mm -hmm which is a sort of paradox. You know, there is a lot of repetition, but that's really holding together musical structures that are quite linear and progressive. Uh -huh. uh, one of the more interesting songwriters I've heard over time is Tony Banks. Um, All right. right. And yeah. in fact, just since the, the Genesis reunion shows were announced, and since I'm a big Genesis fan, thought, you know what, there are several Tony Banks albums I haven't heard, because here in the States, obviously, his solo work didn't take off as much. So I'm going through Spotify, and I've been listening through several of them. Coincidentally, before I even knew about Primitif's release, just about, yeah. oh, two weeks ago, I was listening to the Strictly Inc. album for the first time ever. Yeah. I've known about it for 25 years, but never got around to listening to it. I'm like, I should give it a, yeah. give it a listen. And it's fascinating that, that I heard that and then hear this, and I cannot remember which song on Primitive, and maybe it was an overall stylistic echo, but I almost could have sworn I heard some of his arrangement style in some of your writing. Um, yeah. Kind of maybe make this a specific and a broad question. Was there anything particular obviously having worked with him even a quarter century ago, but having worked with him and knowing the music of Genesis as you do, but then also broadly other influences that came into your songwriting for this project. Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, you're, you're spot on with, uh, you know, Tony being a, an influence. Um, and more generally, I think 70s prog was what I grew up with, really. You know, I, I mean, when I was a kid, I was listening to the Beatles and stuff, but when it got to 68, 69, and I started to get to the cream, and yes, Genesis, Led Zeppelin and stuff, uh, those bands are very much the influences still on my writing, you know. But I think since, um, in when was it, sort of 1998, 2000, 98 it was, that I moved to Canterbury, you know. And Canterbury has this tradition of music, uh, which is represented by bands like Soft Machine, uh, a singer-songwriter called Robert Wyatt, um, there's band Caravan, the Hatfield of the North, Henry Cow, all these bands that were around in the 70s. They were progressive rock bands, but rather than like Tony being influenced more by classical music and bringing that into the, the sort of pop drum, these guys were much more influ influenced by free jazz. So they were influenced by like John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman, Miles Davis, and they were bringing that into rock music and that's a very specific kind of flavor you know and i think when i was growing up i guess i wasn't sort of uh, i wasn't tuned into jazz even though paradoxically my dad my dad was a jazz musician but in some freudian way maybe that's why jazz was like i didn't want to know about it <laughs> um, but um when you know since living in canterbury you know i've met mainly kind of jazz musicians 
And the first uh, jazz album that I made, uh, which was in 2006, I recorded this album with Chris Hughes. Uh, Chris produced Dance All Days and Points on the Curve, that album. And we remained really good friends through that time. And he had this little sort of independent label that did quirky things. And he heard what I was doing with the jazz quartet. He was like, why don't we do an album? You know, so, so we did that. And uh, yeah, that, that album has this sort of um, mix of sort of jazz and prog music, you know. And when we were making it, there was, we were sitting like listening to one of the tracks and like, wow, this is so Canterbury. And I thought, what does he mean by that? It's like I wrote it in Canterbury, you know. But, and he said, you know, Canterbury, Canterbury Sea, Canterbury Sound. And I was like, what's that? <laughs> you know? So he made me up this CD, you know, Soft Machine, Egg, Hatfield of the North. And I used to play it going back and forth to Bath, which is a city like about 200 miles from where I live, you know, where we were mixing and stuff. And, um, yeah, so I had a lot of time to listen to it. And, uh, yeah, so I think the Canterbury thing is quite a big influence on my writing. But... In terms of the harmonies and the way I approach harmony, I can hear the sort of, you know, the way Tony looks at harmony, which is, there's a lot of intricacy in the way mm. he, he hears harmony, you know, and that's certainly an influence on the way I was doing this stuff. The album fits nicely in a vinyl context, and yeah. it, it's, it's really interesting. You listen through it and take like the Spotify approach of one's putting in a CD and you listen through yeah. straight through, straight through, straight through. And then like in my case, that's how I first listened to it. And then I look at it at the vinyl and I go, Oh, okay. Now this makes even more sense. I like can make sense yeah. in full, but it makes even more sense. Vinyl. As you were writing this, was there a certain point where you started to write towards the medium of vinyl? Did you go, okay, I, I mean, you, I, I understand from what I've, what I've heard in another interview that you didn't necessarily set out to write a double album, but right. was there a point when you went, okay, I'm going to make this a part one, part two, part three, part four, and have the song sort of fit that sequence? I did, yeah. Yeah, I think when I started out, I was just writing songs, you know, and collecting them, as it were, you know. But there, there came a point, uh, I guess I sort of recorded about seven or eight songs and played it to a few people, and, and I got a great response, you know. Uh, but there was this sort of sense of like, you know, yeah, but there's more. I think people were probably thinking like, so, yeah, now you need to write a single or something that's a bit more approachable. But, uh, but I wasn't really doing, I, I didn't approach this as a sort of commercial project in a sense. I approached it like I do my jazz things, which is, this is what was, these songs were coming out. And I keep saying that in interviews, that I didn't will them. I mean, I didn't sort of sit down and think, I'm going to write some, some songs. That's just the medium that, that came through, you know, and they kept coming through, you know, and uh, and I got to a point where I had a sort of about well, like a long CD or a you know like a, a sort of an album and a half, you know, and I thought I just want to keep going. And around about that time, it was when the double the Beatles White Album got remastered and re-released, and that took me back to when that album came out when I was a kid. And I remember getting that album and being blown away by the double albumness of it, you know the just the weight of it and the, the packaging, you know, the, the, these black vinyl things in their black sleeves and the, and the photographs and the inserts and the, just the whole presence of it was palpable, you know. And I kind of thought, yeah, I want to do that, you know, before I, before I leave this planet, <laughs> you know. I want to leave a, a sort of thing that has that physical presence as well as the oral presence. And the White Album's a big influence as well in that, you know, how it divides into that side one, has a particular kind of feel of sort of proggy sort of songs and then side two is almost acoustic side three is more rock 
Side 4 has Revolution 9 and is much more experimental. Mm -hmm. And again, Primitif is not quite as defined as that, but each side has a slightly different feel. And uh, so Side 2 has got the darker, more acoustic songs. Side 3, I think, is the side that works best as a sort of flow of tracks and is as uh, You Are The One I Love, which is probably the most up song mm -hmm. there. And, uh, so it's a bit more optimistic, Side 3. And then Side 4 is just a sort of... A, well, it doesn't have Revolution 9 on it, but it has a sort of very kind of a, um, what should we say, a strange, no, not strange, but idiosyncratic version of uh, Lana Del Rey's video games. Hmm. That, that was a, that was interesting because it was also calling back to the rest of the album, I felt like, at, at, at yeah. the end. It seems like, I mean, sometimes in a... I'll use the term concept album, not that this is a concept album, but the term concept album, I, I, I always like it. I think a lot of listeners like when that last piece either ha either summarizes the entire album or yeah. has certain parts of it, like a like the final movement of an orchestral piece, and you start to hear little bits, or, or take the Genesis reference, use yeah. Supper's Ready, and at the end of Supper's Ready, you start to hear parts from the earlier sections of that song. Um Masterpiece, so, I think Supper's Ready. It's interesting that you mentioned that. The, it, of all the prog long form pieces, I think that's still the best. You know? Yeah, it's almost in it like like you can do it orchestrally, and I think it makes a lot of sense in that context yeah, too. Totally. So yeah, I got yeah. a, a little bit of an echo with with of all songs, video games being there, but there's that you know you're yeah. a little there's a little of love starts to pop in and yeah. and all of that. So, so why end with that? Games, you get the song uh, Autumn. It's, I've called it Autumn. But it's really a, a recap of video games. Uh, sorry, a recap of the look of love. That chorus comes. Back, right, right. That's know, what I mean. Yes. And that's just before video games. And right. And to yes. me, that's the sort of a, the classic way to do these things. You know, you sort of allude to the the where you've been, sort of thing, and then you do some final gesture. You know? Yeah. And again, what was what was the reason for ending with that? To to cap with that with that cover. Um, with with video games. Yes. Came, it was in a way. It was to sort of like mirror the look of love. You know, as a cover, so that you're sort of back into the world of songs and stuff. You know, uh, I think also the, what video games is about is, in a way, is sort of connected with the experiences that I went through when I was writing the songs for the album. You know, or reflecting on the songs as I wrote the album. And um, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't sum it up in a way, but it sort of takes it back again into this. Sort of, it's, it's, I think it ends quite hopefully, even though video games is very, uh, very sort of dysfunctional situation. <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, that the way that I perform it, I think, is sort of like I, I sort of believe what it, what video games is saying in the choruses. You know, even though in the modern age you shouldn't believe all that stuff, <laughs> but sort of do. You know? And that final kind of chord that just gets louder and louder and louder is just kind of you know I'm just not going to give up on all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, the seasonal tie-in is—it's uh, it, it, just that it—it it kind of links everything together. And I know again, if if one is listening in a vinyl setting, it—it's not every season is on a side. Their side two has two of the seasons included. Yeah. What was the i what was the impetus for the four seasons to be included in this? I think it was to sort of emphasize the sort of cyclic nature of the the record, you know. Um, uh, it, it was a sort of, to a certain extent, a bit of an afterthought. You know, Winter was an integral song, you know. When I was sort of uh, in the, when I got like this sort of one and a half album is done, I thought I don't want to write another sort of five 
songs. I'd like to write some instrumental pieces that will give people a bit of a break from singing and text. And my initial thought was that they would be quite chilled out, kind of little interludes. You know. But of course, as I worked on them, they started to get more and more intense. You know, so they they fit in with this kind of quite driven sense that the whole record has. You know, but uh, I just uh, sort of gave them those titles in a way to sort of mark. The, the, the interludes mark these sort of progressions of, of sort of time passing in a sense mm-hmm. and I guess and I was clear about winter and I was also clear about autumn mm-hmm. summer and spring you know as somebody said it doesn't really sound like spring does it you know and I was kind of like well no but that's not the point really right. it's just spring was happening during that time aha <laughs> uh-huh. and you see for I I almost interpreted it as like part of the arc of life as I'm listening to the lyrical thread of the of the, the the storytelling of, of the songs, and then I yeah. see each one of these. Obviously, like in winter is obviously the, the long one with plenty of lyrics, etc. Et different sure. from the others, but still, it made me think like, well, this is a life's progression here. Start with, I mean, winter. I guess is even before life begins. It's in the cold dormancy, the hibernation, yeah. and then builds and builds, and then the and then the the flow back down with with autumn. So I took it as a life cycle accompanying. The lyrics. Yeah, that, that's that's good and more more succinct than I've just expressed it. So I'll <laughs> go with it. It's a life cycle. <laughs> Any songs not make the cut for this album? Say again. Any songs not make the cut for this album? Uh, is there anything lying around? Uh, there is one song actually that, uh, well, actually a couple, yeah, uh, that that I didn't put on in the end, you know. Uh, but I didn't go too far with those songs. So the stuff that's. Um, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of outtakes after a double mm-hmm. album. You know, most of it's there on the right in front of me. <laughs> what is the reaction thus far of fans, friends, people who've listened to it, whomever? What mm. what songs are standing out the most? Well, the reaction has been really positive. You know, among my close friends, you know, I mean, I guess they're probably predisposed to like it, but but they're impressed. But I'm really pleased that fans, you know, especially the sort of Wang Chung fans, you know, who are probably uh you know possibly finding it more challenging um you know they're really enthusiastic about it um uh yeah and um so yeah i I have sort of hopes for this record you know that it will get some sort of traction and get some general kind of uh uh, you know a sense of it being uh yeah sort of certainly a a record that reflects our times to a certain extent and the reviews uh in in the music papers have all been really positive uh, without exception so far. I'm sure I'll get a bad one somewhere, but, uh, but so far it's all been good. So you said the next thing coming up, uh, or one of the next big things coming up will be the Wang Chung re-releases, starting, yes. you said, in the autumn is when we should yeah. start to see those? That's the plan, yeah. So sort of autumn for Wang Chung, uh, Points on the Curve, and To Live and Die in LA. And then we'll do the other three uh, in the spring. Okay. Yeah, so that's the plan. What Will there be any unreleased tracks, demos, anything, or is this just a straight-up remastering? What's the plan for that? This is deluxe editions, you know, with a lot of outtakes. I was just looking at the stuff for Wang Chang, and it's, you know, we did a couple of independent singles before we recorded for Arista, so that's on it. There's some live stuff that was done at the time. Uh, There's some outtakes. When we recorded Wang Chung, we worked with a producer called Rhett Davis, who's famous for Roxy music, amongst mm. many other things. You know? mm-hmm. And we did the whole album with Rhett. But then the record company would listen to it and were kind of like, oh, God, you know, we need a proper single. So they got this other guy in who ended up remixing some of the stuff. So the Wang Chung album, as it was released, 
was a bit of a mixture of Rex's work and uh, this guy Roger Bashirian's work, you know. But we've actually dug up, uh, if that's the right expression, uh, Rex's uh, old mixes, you know. Mm. So that will be the first time these things have been heard. It's the first time I've heard them in um, oh. however many years it is since they were done, you know. So it's going to be very interesting, I think, for completists. The whole thing is to try and make it as complete as possible. And I think, uh, yeah, maybe it's time for a bit of a Wang Chung reassessment. You know, so. mm. Very nice. Uh, and then in terms of other work, as you said, there you probably at some point want to go back and revisit that other solo album from the early 1990s. Yeah, yeah at some point uh, that would be a good thing to do, I think. Um, I think this time last year I was working with my jazz quartet and a rock band from Canterbury called Siddhartha. We released, uh, well, it's a, a curious artifact, really. It's a vinyl, a uh, 12-inch vinyl um, and it's like a 23-minute piece on one side and nothing on the other. <laughs> so it's kind of like a single. But uh, but anyway, it's a cover of uh, Beck's Nobody's Fault But My Own. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a, though I say it myself, it's a great bit of work. So we released it and then we did some gigs around that, uh, around about this time last year. And uh, we recorded one of the gigs that we did here in Canterbury. And we're going to release that as a sort of double live album. So that should be ready, I hope, by the by the fall as well. So I'd love to release that around that time. And um, the, the, they were interesting gigs in that we were doing some instrumental stuff. But I also did a cover of um, Robert Wyatt's Sea Song hmm. and um, a cover of a song by Talk Talk um, called Merman off of their album Laughing Stock. Hmm. So that's an interesting hybrid kind of project, you know. Um, but yeah, so there's a lot of stuff to come out, you know. And uh, maybe in this enforced solitude, uh, I can start writing the next, the follow-up to Primitive. <laughs> There's a lot of musicianship coming out nowadays. If there, if there are any silver linings to all of the quarantining going on, there sure seems to be a lot of musical work going on right now. We're well, seeing it's people. It's kind of, uh, you know, one of the things I with Primitive was that I had a lot of time on my own, <laughs> nothing else to do. And I sort of stepped out of doing the touring with Wayne China. So, um, yeah, that's what you need. For creative work, you need solitude and time. Uh, a bit of inspiration doesn't go on this. But, um, but, yeah, so those are in plentiful supply at the moment. Well, Primitif is a, is a very good result of a lot of that work. The new album from Jack Hughes, out already now. So you can buy it, you can stream it, uh, you can listen to it on CD, vinyl, however you want to listen to it. Uh, learn more, jackhughes.com has more information about that. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with us across the pond today. And um, and all the best with this uh, with this project. And, and keep getting the word out about that. And we'll be looking forward to all those other projects coming down in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Jack Hughes, they're really good conversation with him. Uh, and as you noticed by the audio, or maybe noticed by the audio, that was via Skype. First time I've done one of these interviews uh, via the Internet as opposed to a phone conversation. That that was fun getting to actually talk directly person to person through a computer, obviously, uh, with one of the subjects. So, again, JackHughes.com, J-A-C-K-H-U-E-S. JackHughes.com. Follow online as well. He's on social media. And like I said, you can you can stream the new album. You can purchase the new album physically. Um, however you want to do that, uh, learn more again at JackHughes.com. Thanks, as always, to Greatest Hits 98.1 Radio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, for providing the facilities for Got Time for a Quick Story. You can listen to a lot of these interviews, including this one, at the interviews page at Greatest Hits 98.1 Dot com. You can also 
subscribe to the Got Time for a Quick Story podcast. That is uh, at Apple, Android, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and also rate it highly if you can. That'll get more word out about this podcast. Got time for a quick story? I'm Luke Anthony.